50 years ago this month, in May 1968, students in Paris took to the streets calling for a new kind of revolution. There were student uprisings and revolts around the world starting in May 68 at Columbia University in the United States, then in London, Rome, and Tokyo. But Paris in May 68 was the best one, the one that moved beyond the campus, threatening the political system with a general strike involving 10 million workers from every segment of French society. For comment, we turn to Art Goldhammer. He writes about French politics and history for The Nation, The American Prospect, and other publications. And he's the translator of more than 130 books from the French, including Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. He's based at Harvard Center for European Studies, where he chairs the Seminar for Visiting Scholars. Art Goldhammer, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you. Well, how did the French student uprising of May 68 get started, and how did it get so big so fast? Well, the standard story is that it uh, began in March of 1968 at uh, a suburban university just outside of Paris, a place called Nanterre. There had been demonstrations at Nanterre uh, going back to the previous fall, uh, having to do with many things, uh, including uh, the right of uh, men to visit the, uh, the women's dormitories on campus. The immediate uh, cause of uh, unrest in, in March was the arrest of uh, some demonstrators at an anti-Vietnam War demonstration outside the American Express office in Paris. That led to uh, a protest uh, on the campus of Nanterre, uh, which was attended by uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, later known as Danny the Red, who was well known to the students because he had been one of the leaders of the protest against the, uh, the regulations governing the women's dormitories. Uh, and so he's well known and, and quite a charismatic leader. This demonstration at Nanterre was intended to uh, obtain the release from jail of people who had been arrested at the uh, American Express offices. For the first time, uh, the rector of Nanterre called in the police to clear the campus, and this uh, was generally not done in France. Uh, campuses until that point were seen as uh, refuges, refuges for uh, protest, and uh, police were not supposed to enter. So this police action in Nanterre led the students to move their protest uh, into the center of Paris, to the Sorbonne, uh, where they began to occupy the courtyard. And that uh, provoked a police reaction in Paris, and things grew from there. And how did it happen that French workers, eventually 10 million French workers, uh, joined in with a general strike? Uh, well, that's a, a very interesting story, uh, because uh, the Communist Party, which was in control of one of the major uh, trade unions, the CGT, uh, was not sympathetic to the student strikes initially, and... Uh, tried to restrain workers from going out on strike. Uh, but what happened was that <clears throat> the prime minister was uh, out of the country. The prime minister at the time was uh, Georges Pompidou uh, under President de Gaulle. Pompidou was uh, absent, uh, I believe, in Afghanistan uh, when the first demonstrations at the Sorbonne began. And uh, de Gaulle did not quite know how to respond. Uh, in fact, he sank into a, a deep depression, which continued through much of the month of May. And consequently, there was some confusion on the part of uh, the junior ministers in the government about what to do. At first, they took a hard line, which was encouraged by de Gaulle. But when Pompidou returned from his uh, 
absence in uh, Afghanistan, he decided to take a, a more conciliatory line, pulled the police out of the Sorbonne and uh, reopened the university. That appeared to uh, everyone in France as a victory for the students. It was the first time that the Gaullist power had uh, shown this kind of weakness. And it was that that encouraged uh, workers, many of them uh, in defiance of their union leadership, to go out on strike or even to occupy their own factories. And that's what uh, blossomed into the uh, vast general strike that you mentioned in the introduction, which eventually saw some 10 million workers uh, stopping work and really bringing the country to a halt. The political climax of all of this came at the end of May when President de Gaulle fled from Paris. At that moment, it looked like this might be a real revolution. How did that happen and how did it end? It uh, happened uh, because, as I uh, said a moment ago, de Gaulle had sunk into a depression. He was quite confused about what to do. He knew that using troops against the demonstrators would uh, lead to uh, an armed clash. Many of these uh, students were uh, skilled guerrilla fighters, and there would be blood in the streets. And uh, at that point, uh, things would become uh, completely unpredictable. There is still disagreement about uh, what de Gaulle actually intended, whether he was fleeing in the expectation that a revolution was going to occur no matter what he did, or whether he was fleeing uh, because uh, he wanted to regroup his forces and perhaps persuade the General Massu, who was in charge of the French military base in Germany, uh, to which he fled, to uh, marshal his forces and actually march on Paris with forces from outside France. In the meantime, the military command had uh, actually recalled some French forces from Eastern Europe, and several tank units were uh, prepared in secret and uh, moved into positions around Paris in case they were needed. De Gaulle had flown in uh, several helicopters with his family and uh, uh, members of his staff to Germany, and uh, when he arrived, uh, General Massu was not at all all enthusiastic about the idea of uh, invading France with the forces he commanded, And uh, he said to General de Gaulle, uh, according to his own testimony, that by fleeing, de Gaulle would undo what he had done in 10 years of work rebuilding the French uh, Republic from uh, the rubble that had been left by the uh, Algerian War. So Massou persuaded de Gaulle to return, which de Gaulle did. He arrived uh, back in France on May 30th and promptly dissolved the National Assembly, uh, called for new elections. And at this point, uh, public opinion began to change. Until now, public opinion had been uh, fairly sympathetic to the students and the strikers, uh, at least opinion as reflected by the media. But as is often the case in France, what happens in Paris is somewhat misleading. Many of uh, France's uprisings have occurred in Paris, only to discover that uh, support nationwide is not as strong as it seems to be in Paris. Uh, And that's what happened after de Gaulle's return. The pro-Gaullist forces began to discover that they were stronger than uh, they had appeared. There was what turned out to be a silent majority out there in the countryside. By the middle of June, there were large anti-uprising demonstrations, pro-Gaullist demonstrations, uh, taking place in Paris. And in the vote that was uh, held uh, toward the end of June, uh, the Gaullist forces won a resounding victory, and the uh, 
the opposition parties were uh, reduced to uh, uh, a shadow of their former strength. Uh, in fact, the uh, opposition parties had not uh, enjoyed much uh, favor from the student protesters or the workers either. Uh, both the socialists and the communists uh, were quite unpopular among the uh, the demonstrators. So it was not surprising that they did not do well in this election. We need to talk about what was the spirit of 68. That's sort of what remains is the legacy of Paris in May, particularly the slogans. My favorite was power to the imagination. Yes, there were many great slogans and many great posters that uh, uh, came out of uh, these events. Uh, after the uh, uh, Sorbonne was retaken by the students, the movement really expanded to artists and intellectuals, including the School of uh, Fine Arts, where many young artists were recruited into working for the movement. They produced poster after poster, so the walls of Paris were plastered with these posters filled with imaginative uh, slogans promoted by uh, groups like the Situationists and so on. And in some sense, uh, it's that part of the movement that really explains the lasting influence of 1968, We've been talking up till now about movement tactics and political parties yeah. and trade unions, that sort of thing. But what really happened in 1968, I think, was that people discovered what real freedom felt like for the first time uh, and discovered that they had been living in a society that they came to think of as repressive. There was recently a documentary on French TV that was quite wonderful. It had one of um, General de Gaulle's sons, uh, grandsons rather, who described the dinner that he had with his grandfather during the events. De Gaulle asked him what in the world these students wanted, and uh, the grandson said, uh, we want to live free. We, we feel that uh, we've been living in a society that's uh, hyper-constrained by rules, uh, not of our own choosing, and uh, uh, the atmosphere has changed. That was really the spirit of, uh, of 68. Uh, people... Uh, discovered what it was like to open up, to feel themselves for a period of a few weeks uh, living in a utopian society where people who normally did not speak to one another, students and workers, professors and students, parents and children, uh, found that uh, they had conversations that they had never had before. And that uh, influenced the uh, attitude toward life of, uh, of the whole generation to come. Well, in some of its more crucial aspects. May 68, despite its defeat, was a wild success. The women's movement was launched, galvanized in large part by the male chauvinism of 68's leaders. Protests against the war in Vietnam played a key role eventually in ending it. Universities were transformed. The environmental movement was born. But but there was also a massive backlash starting in the United States with the election of Nixon in November of 1968. I think a lot of people would say it continued through Reagan and it continues today with Trump, all of whom were enemies of 1968. I looked up where was Trump in May 68. Trump was a business school student at Penn in 1968. He graduated in June, and within a few months, he was riding around Manhattan in his uh, father's limo. Do you think that there is a direct line from the opponents of May 68 down to today? Yes, I do. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Certainly, the reaction... uh, in the United States and in the UK came earlier than in France. Uh, it was already in place by the 1980s. 
in France, the, the course of reaction was somewhat different because the direct political legacy of 1968 was the uh, rebirth of the Socialist Party uh, under François Mitterrand, which began in 1971 and led to the uh, election of, uh, of Mitterrand uh, as president in, in 1981. So that was the uh, first time that a left-wing government had come to power under the Fifth Republic, the regime uh, instituted in France by de Gaulle. So that delayed the reaction of 1968 for a number of years, and uh, really uh, it be- began in a political sense with the election of, of uh, Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy, in 2007. And in some sense, the um, election of uh, Emmanuel Macron today is uh, can be seen as a continuation of the reaction against 1968. Uh, Macron, the current president, rejects all aspects of uh, the utopian spirit of uh, 1968 and is a believer in uh, in reform capitalism. So the liquidation of, of the spirit of 68 took longer in France than uh, it did elsewhere. And uh, I think we see the effects and the differences between uh, French political life today and political life in the U.S. and U.K. Art Goldhammer. Our man on French politics and history. Art, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.